0: Good morning. Would you turn in your Bibles to Proverbs, the book of Proverbs? We're going to spend some time thinking about wisdom throughout the month of January, at least for a while in January. And so we're going to dive into Proverbs today. I'd like us to think um, well, so what is wisdom? <clears throat> is wisdom found in a fortune cookie? Like, is it a nugget of wisdom? So here's this nugget, or is it? Is it? Or what is it? I I, I would like to liken it in some ways to um, the study of physics. When I was in high school and college, I I really enjoyed the study of physics, particularly electricity and magnetism. Uh, how current generates magnetism, and magnetism can cause current, and there are these these laws that described how these very basic things interact. That's what physics does. Physics sits underneath the lesser sciences. Uh, Or at least it sets the rules. It explains how things are going to work. How uh, force and time and all of these things that are in our universe, how they work together. Well, I think in some ways Proverbs is like that. Proverbs describes how the universe works. If we might say it's to gain the mind of God, and the mind of God understands how the universe operates because God made it. And that's that's wisdom. My my dad when I was a boy and he wanted to sound wise, he would say this. He would announced to the room his proverb he would say a wet bird never flies at night which is ridiculous and it means nothing <laughs> it was just his way of saying i'm smarter than you it was like it was like a, a pronouncement of wisdom but we have in our, we have in ourselves this notion that sometimes that wisdom is this mysterious thing that you have to like ascend a high cold mountain to find a monk in the locust position and he's going to say something to you that is, you know, that you can't even begin to plumb the depths of it and you're going to descend the mountain and live your whole life kind of in the enigma of the statement and then right before you die you understand and you're wise. It's not how it is. God would have you be wise right now. And he's given us this this book and his whole revelation to sort of walk us, walk us towards it. And so that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to look at Proverbs chapter 1. And we're going to kind of walk through it. So it seems best to start at the first verse. The first verse is not a proverb. It's just a statement. I will actually say Proverbs 1 through 9 are unique from large portions of the rest of the book. But in general, if you've ever read the book of Proverbs, it's probably defined by a couplet. Like it'll have a saying and then it'll sort of have a sister saying right next to it that is sometimes the opposite or sometimes it doubles down, but it's this set of couplets. Well, the first chapter of Proverbs is not that way and it's it's ushering us into the concept of wisdom. So here's verse one. It says this, the Proverbs of Solomon, son of David... King of Israel. So real quickly, as far as how does a proverb relate to, to wisdom, a proverb is a brief expression possessing a bigger truth. So it's a thoughtful way of trying to point at a larger truth. And this book is largely attributed to King Solomon. Now, two, verses two through four are gonna be the purpose, the purpose of wisdom or purpose of these Proverbs. So let me go ahead and read that and uh, we'll talk about that a little bit. So why would we wanna read Proverbs? Well, look at verse two. To know wisdom and instruction, to understand words of insight, to receive instruction in wise dealing in righteousness, justice, and equity, to give prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the youth. That's why. I'll say it again kind of in a summary. We would study the Proverbs to learn wisdom, to gain instruction or discipline, some translations say, for the role of understanding, for moral discernment. Prudence to the simple. So one translation uh, I commonly use, says, shrewdness for the inexperienced. So it's not simple-mindedness, it's more like rookie. And finally, discretion to the young. Now you can see, uh, what I'm about to say to you, you can see present in what was just said, but uh, it's certainly going to be true about the whole book. But I want to lay it up up front, which is the wisdom of God, which you might say is the description of the universe, the divine universe Uh, that God's made, the wisdom of God has, it cuts across multiple dimensions of life. So, wisdom is practical. It's not uh, lofty platitudes, but wisdom is practical. It matters to your body. The the Proverbs that you're going to read care about Where you're going today, what you're doing today, who you're eating with today, and how you're working today. It cares about those very practical things. The Proverbs are connected to our hands. But the Proverbs are also connected to our minds. And when I say that, like, Proverbs require intelligence, I don't mean that Proverbs, that you need to be really smart to understand the Proverbs. So it's not an IQ issue. It's a thoughtfulness issue, meaning that the Proverbs or wisdom is more than simply healthy steps towards something, okay? So we get, uh, we get the used reader's digests in our house. They get passed on to us. And on the cover of reader's Digests, while it's still in print, are like eight steps to this. Four steps to that. If you ever go through a grocery line, you'll see this. You'll see 900 steps to 600 different things, right? Four steps to being healthy. Five steps to know if somebody's stealing your identity. Three steps that you can do to know if you have uh, this ailment or that ailment. There's these steps. That is not wisdom. Wisdom is not you going on YouTube to figure out the steps towards something. It's not how to do something. It's how to think about what it is you're doing. So you know if you're a salesperson you want to make a sale well you can figure out how to make the sale but wisdom would say is this really the person you want to be trying to sell this to should you you know how often should you sell what how should you balance your work life and your and your rest life this what products are wise for you to sell? What are your limitations? It's those sorts of things that require thoughtfulness. And the wisdom of God speaks to that. So Proverbs touch the body and they touch the mind and they also touch the soul. Proverbs are moral. So there's a wisdom of the world and the wisdom of the world uh, cares about effectiveness, but the wisdom of God cares about righteousness. Not just can you do it, but ought you do it. And in what measure? You might think of a person who is very, very uh, street smart. Man, this person really knows people. He has people dialed up well. Apart from godly wisdom, that person can become a pretty strong manipulator. He knows the system, but he's ignored the oughtness of God in it. And wisdom and Proverbs care about that. Finally, I would say that Proverbs or wisdom are mysterious. And when I mean, say mysterious, I mean they're foreign to you. They, you were not born with wisdom. It's not innate to us. We're born foolish. So most of the book of Proverbs is written to a young man, not because he's foolish, but because we are born not wise. I'm trying to find an affirming way to say it. Less wise than when you're older. You start at zero. We even see this. Last Sunday, Pastor Terry uh, taught from Luke chapter 2, the adolescent Jesus. And there's this passage right there where it says, And Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor of God and man. Notice that. He grew in wisdom and stature. Now, None of us ever, ever question that Jesus started as a small person and ended as a tall person. We don't question the growth of his stature, but along with his stature, as we would hope and expect, he grew in wisdom. It's not innate to you. Wisdom requires deciphering and maturing. So I want to give you an example uh, in Proverbs chapter one. So we're going to skip five, six and seven for a second. And we're going to look at eight, verse eight and following. This is a a picture, a wisdom picture for us to see. And I I think you'll see these these elements at play here. So let's just watch how how it fleshes itself out. Let me read verse eight. It says, hear my son, your father's instruction and forsake not your mother's teaching. For they are a graceful garland for your head and a pendant for your neck. My son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. If they say, come with us, let us lie in wait for blood. Let us ambush the innocent without reason. Like Sheol, let us swallow them alive, the whole. Like those who go down to the pit, we shall find all precious goods. We shall fill our houses with plunder. Throw in your lot among us. We will all have one purse. My son, Do not walk in the way with them. Hold back your foot from their paths for their feet run to evil and they make haste to shed blood. For in vain is a net spread in the sight of any bird. But these men lie in wait for their own blood. They set an ambush for their own lives. Such are the ways of everyone who is greedy for unjust gain. It takes away the life of of its possessors. Now in that story, that that picture is a picture of parents warning their son against traveling with this these sinners, these evildoers. They're called sinners. And what I want you to see there is how, do you see there how the sinners, these guys in the in the story, how they do not see how the world really works. They have chosen to see the world a certain way because they're fools. But if they could see the world as it really was, they would understand that they are setting their own trap. That's what it says. These men lie in wait for their own blood. If if they were wise, they could see that this kind of behavior is gonna come back. It's gonna backfire on them That it's gonna take the life of the one who possesses it. That's in front of us. We would say this. In the material universe, we don't argue with the laws of science so much. We generally accept them. We accept laws of inertia, and so we wear a seatbelt. You could not proclaim your independence of inertia and remove your seatbelt And expect, well, you'd be lying in wait for your own blood. This is what the Lord's saying is, is the fool cannot see the way the law of God is written. And it's going to come to calamity. We have words for this. In our common language, we have proverbial statements that we say all the time. Like someone will say, there's no shortcuts in life, Sonny Boy. Like there's no shortcuts. That's the way we, we might say this. Or we might say, that will come back to bite you. So the way we say this. Or, now I said this in the first service and somebody didn't, had never heard this. Have you ever heard the phrase, you're going to get your comeuppance? No, some of you haven't. That's a good one. You should use it. Like find somebody and tell them about their comeuppance. It's going to come back on you is what that means. You're going to get your comeuppance. This is what this is saying. There's a kind of a, 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 a real worldly view of karma. People talk about karma. I think in general, all, what they're really pointing at, most people when they talk about this, is this sort of thing. Well, what did you expect? He did all of this bad stuff in life. Of course, it's going to come back on them. It's this. Okay, now God's saying it in a way that's very, very true in just real, practical life. But it's it is spiritually and profoundly true. You cannot choose how to look at the universe, and be have the right to determine how it goes. You can choose to look at the universe, but you have no right to determine how it goes. God is saying to be wise, is to adopt. His view of the world. And then it will go well. That's why the, pro- the Proverbs, they're not promises. The Proverbs are not prophetic promises that if you train a child up in the way he should go when he's older, what, what, Lord, you said he, he wouldn't depart from them. You promised me he wouldn't depart. It's not a promise. It's, it's saying, how would you expect your son or daughter to go well in life if you don't raise them the way they should go? It's a window into the insight that God has made you the steward of that young person, raise them towards health. Generally, that works well. By the way, this little section we just read it has those dimensions that we talked about in Proverbs, that body, mind, spirit, mystery. They're all present in this right? You notice the concern for the body here. They're saying, son, don't walk with them. Don't be with them. Don't hang out with them. The father and the mother are concerned with who he is with physically. Then there is the mental side of it. Don't listen to what they're saying. Be warned when they, when they, they court you, when they try to incite you to violence. Be careful of that. And then there's the, obviously the moral perspective of sort of calling out their wrongdoing for what it is. There's even a mystery in this. There's a, there's, a, there's a fun mystery in this. I don't know if fun's the right word, but there's a mystery. I don't know if if you read it, maybe if you read it at all like I did when I first read this, I thought, well, who does this today? Who lies in wait to pounce on somebody and murder them and take their stuff? It just didn't seem so I mean, I know there are some peripheral groups who do this. It seems pretty dark. Seems pretty warlordish or something from the medieval period, like where Robin Hood's riding through the forest. Who really does this? I was sort of thinking that. But then you get to verse 19, and he springs it on you. Such are the ways of everyone who is greedy for unjust gain. Now, who does that? we caught. I mean, I do that. I've done that. I can't imagine trying to say I'm innocent of that. I should, must assume, even if I cannot remember the last time that I was greedy for unjust gain, if I, I must assume that that has been in me of trying to take advantage of a situation, unfair advantage of a situation just because I see it before the other person sees it. What the Lord's saying is, is, you think you got away with it. I saw what you did was a life-taking moment. God's saying, you know, a lot of times, some of the, the greatest ways that, that injustice occurs in our own life is where the cost of our actions take place in what we think is a different system of life. Like we don't know, we don't know the group who had to pay that price. Like, I got this, but... You know the the victim is not right next to me. The victim is, I don't know, whether the other side of the world, or the other side of the wall, or the other side of the internet. It doesn't matter, right? God is saying you you think it's a victimless crime, but I see it all. Life taking is what it was. You see how right here, there's this this opportunity. It, To grab you and say, see the world like I see it. Okay, so verses two through four are the purpose of Proverbs. Verses five and six I'd like to call the invitation. Let me go ahead and read the invitation with you. Uh, Let the wise hear and increase in learning. And the one who understands obtain guidance. To understand a proverb and a saying, the word of the wise and their riddles. So this is a little bit of a challenging phrase here. Let the wise hear and let the understanding understand, is essentially what it's saying. Now think about that. Who can can hear? Well, the wise can hear. And who can understand? Well those who can understand can understand you feel the problem in that well what about the person who's not wise well the the fool the fool cannot hear and the fool cannot understand so there's an invitation to wisdom, but it seems at some level as though it's out of reach for some people. Those who are wise can get wiser and those who have understanding can get understandinger, but the fool is out. That's what it sounds like. What we should note is, wisdom does not come like uh, like you pick up a unit of wisdom and you take it in and you pick up another unit of wisdom and over here this person has consumed eight hundred units of wisdom and over there that person's a fool yet because he's only had a hundred. It's not like if you sat all day and ate fortune cookies you'd come out wise. You wouldn't. It's not saying that. It's saying those who can hear hear and those who can't hear. The implication is. You can't hear. The, the picture I have in my mind, you, you ever have a thought where you're almost so ashamed that you have to say it? Because it just can't... There's this old game, Mario Brothers, Super Mario Brothers, where this character would walk around and he'd jump up and hit his head on a coin. And it would go, but ding And if he did that a lot, he'd get an extra life or he'd get bigger or change colors. I can't remember... Exactly, all the things, but that's not wisdom. Wisdom is not like walking through life and oh, but ding, I got another one, you know. And you just add up, and when you add it all up, you're wise. That's you can't can't just eat wisdom. You are either outside of it or in it. You either know how to get it and are gaining it, or you are a fool. That's the implication here. And we know this too. This seems harsh, but we know this to be the case. We see this throughout life. All the time. Here's a proverbial statement. You can lead a horse to water, but you can't make it drink. And you see it saying there? You can do everything you can for that dumb horse, but if it doesn't know what to do, it doesn't matter what you do for it. We know this. There's people in life who are learners, and learners Learn. There's hard workers, and hard workers work hard. And there's fools. And no matter where they are, they're going to waste time and opportunity. They're just going to do it. The only thing you can do for a fool is fire them. I mean, they, they won't work hard. They, it's, you can't give them another nugget because they can't hear. The fool cannot hear. We have statements for this. It's in one ear, and what? It's out the other. They are thick-headed. That's what we say. We also might call them a numb skull. But these are the words we use to describe. It describes the hopelessness. So this, there's, there's alarm in this invitation. The alarm is those who are wise are on the path towards wisdom and you're going to get more. Those who can hear, hear more. We... Uh, This shows up all the time in the Bible. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. It means God's not talking to everybody. God's only talking to those who can hear. Why waste his time on those who will not hear? This is the same reason Jesus talks in parables. Talking in parables creates a prerequisite of if you're seeking God, you will probably hear it. But if you're not seeking God, the question of the parable will not land at your feet. Right? Parables classically end with a question. Like, and how are you dealing with that? And the question is supposed to come to your feet and the hearer is supposed to process that. And that's how God catches you. But it's told in the form of a parable or riddle so that it's not wasted on the fool. It's an uncomfortable notion. If I'm a fool, well, the truth is, if I was a fool, I wouldn't know it, right? I mean, if you're here today and you're a fool, maybe you're bored, but you're certainly not scared because you don't know you're a fool. You think you're all good. It's the wise who are nervous and they're listening. And verse 7 is the key. Where's the hope? The hope is in verse seven. How would a fool become wise? How does that bridge crossed? Where is their hope? What, if if I'm not who I am, how do I get to who I am? Now, I don't mean that this, this is a grand panacea, right? The fool may not do this, but this is how wisdom is found. This is the beginning of all things. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. The fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord, uh, I might describe as living life in view of God. The, the things that you think you're doing and thinking and saying, that all of those things, you're sort of looking up at your heavenly father saying, like, is that okay? Like a child might say, you know, you know the, the, a bunch of kids come over and they ask little Tommy to go out and play and he says, I got to ask mom first. He has a fear of his mom. Not an unhealthy fear, like, I mean, we can certainly imagine dysfunctional pictures, but in a high-functioning picture, in a pristine picture of parent-child, little Tom is going to go ask mom because it will not go well for him if he lives, if he just assumes, if he writes his own rules. She controls the law of the jungle. So That's the fear of the Lord. Fear of the Lord is God made it. God's described it with laws. I want to know his laws. I don't mean just rules. I mean like his spiritual laws of gravity and his spiritual laws of inertia and his spiritual, all of those things. I want to know how the pieces of the world come into play and how I fit in it and how I relate to others. And I know the only place to go for that is God. So I'm going to live inside of that reality continuously. That's what this is saying. This person is growing up in that mindfulness. Just like they might say, should I do that? I don't know. I should ask my heavenly father first. Lord, should I do that? To what measure? How long? What degree? How would it affect so and so? What should I stop doing? The fear of the Lord. Now usually at this point, And usually the fear of the Lord comes up, as I reflect on teaching in the Bible, it comes up in another broader teaching. So I I push through it pretty quickly and I will typically say something like this. It's not so much about dread or scared. It's almost about homage or respect. There's There's an ancient kingly word called fealty. Like loyalty and faithfulness, fealty—that I think is my mind—is the best word for living in the fear of the Lord. Is I have sworn fealty to Him, so I serve Him and Him only. That is the concept that for me brings me closest. And so, sometimes I will typically say it's not so much about fear, but I want to—I want to be entirely accurate. And if I were to be entirely accurate, I think I, we would—I could not say that fear. And as far as like scared or dread, that fear is entirely absent from this concept. I don't think it's entirely absent. I don't think it's at the center. I don't think it's at the essence. I think at the essence of it is the knowledge that God's great and big and grand and holy and majestic and mighty, and that he made everything. And so he's the maker of all things. I'm beneath that. I mean, that the fear of the Lord comes primarily from the recognition of comparative size, He's huge and I'm small. And connected to that are other attributes of the Lord, like he's loving and he's compassionate and he's full of grace and mercy. So I know that this extremely large God at the very center of him is not rage and anger that I need to be scared of because of these other attributes of God. Nonetheless, however... Being a little scared sometimes seems about right. I think if we were to believe in a God that size and then choose to live like uh, Romans 1 was mentioned in worship today a different portion, but though they knew God, Paul writes, they chose neither to glorify him as God or give him thanks. I should be scared there. Given the greatness of God and my comparative smallness. Let's just pause for a second. Let's make sure we we know the whole the whole story, the whole gospel. The Bible has made it clear, right? And so Christ is the gift of God to mankind to reconcile us to him so that we don't have to have this dreadful fear every time we sin or that the body of sin that we present to the Lord doesn't cause this insurmountable fear and dread of what will happen. God says you no longer need to have that fear. God has not given you a spirit of fear but of power and of love and of sound judgment. Christ is standing there with you And he's died for you. That's the gospel. But next to it is this. One day, every one of us will rise again and will stand before the Lord and will answer to God. And God will decide whether he knows you or not. In other words, There's plenty of opportunities in the Bible to see this told in parable or in more real form. There's some people who think that they know God because they wrote their own rule book and they pinned up what it means to follow God in it. And God says, well, that doesn't matter. How I know you is all that matters. And one day that will be reckoned. God will decide if he knows you or not based upon your faith in action. And those who he does not know, he will cast from his presence into hell. That has a place in the fear of the Lord, doesn't it? Especially in light of all the good God's done. All the good God has done for us. All the love, all the mercy through Jesus Christ that we've received. All of the coming close that we've received. All of that should not be missed or ignored. Matthew 10 is one scenario like this. Matthew 10 is an account where Jesus is sending the disciples out two by two. He's sending them out and he warns them. He says, it's not going to go so easy. You're going to be like sheep among wolves is what he says. He says, don't be be scared. He says, do not fear. But it's sort of in that don't be scared. Don't let... These earthly circumstances scare you. And he first tells them how great the Lord's care is for them. Doesn't the Lord care for sparrows? How much more valuable are you than a sparrow? Okay, but he ends up saying this. Here's Matthew 10. So have no fear of them. For nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be made known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light. And what you hear, Whispered proclaim on the housetops, and do not fear those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul, rather fear him who can destroy both the soul and the body in hell so there's this just tells you like it's certainly to the followers of Jesus who feel and, and embrace the idea that we're sent we're sent people with the word with the word in the world as Don't live quiet. Don't live in secrecy. Don't do this. Don't live so scared of the world as though the world is bigger than God because he has the whole world in his hands. Orient your fear correctly because the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge or wisdom. You're gonna see an occasion of this played out. Our last reading will be from verse 20 to the end of the chapter. <clears throat> and one of the reasons I spend a little more time on the fear of the Lord is because this next reading, if someone doesn't have a, a correct view of how serious God is about himself and about what he's calling you into, well, then this will sound sort of downright caustic or unchristian. You might say, this is not nice. But if we come into it with an appreciation of what God has done for us and his greatness, we might see it in a slightly different light. I'm gonna read in 20. Now, verse 20, wisdom is gonna be personified as a woman. And so that's the way it should be read here. Wisdom cries aloud in the street, in the market she raises her voice, at the head of the noisy street she cries out, at the entrance to the city gates she speaks. How long, O simple ones, will you love being simple? How long will scoffers delight in scoffing and fools hate knowledge? If you turn at my reproof, behold... I will pour out my spirit to you. I will make my words known to you. Because I have called and you've refused to listen, have stretched out my hands and no one is heeded, because you have ignored all my counsel and would have none of my reproof, I also will laugh at your calamity. I will mock when terror strikes you, when terror strikes you like a storm and your calamity comes like a whirlwind when distress and anguish come upon you, then they will call upon me, but I will not answer. They will seek me diligently, but, I won't, but will not find me because they hated knowledge and did not choose to fear the Lord, would have none of my counsel and despised all my reproof. Therefore they shall eat the fruit of their way and have the fill of their own devices. For the simple are killed by their turning away, and the complacency of fools destroys them. But whoever listens to me will dwell secure, will be at ease, without dread of disaster. Now, I think if God were as aloof as some might say he is, if he was distant and uncaring and cold, then this would feel distant and uncaring and cold. But this is not how God is. Do you see how it starts? He cries out in the street. Just allow, and incidentally, the early church had no trouble calling, seeing wisdom and calling it Jesus. Just imagine the ministry of Jesus. Jesus literally, who is our wisdom, right? The fullness of wisdom is in Christ. This is Colossians 2. The knowledge, Christ is a knowledge of God's mystery in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Jesus himself walked the streets of mankind proclaiming wisdom, shouting out. I mean, he tells his own disciples, what I've said to you in quiet, you shout from the rooftops. Christ stands outside of his city. Oh, that I would have gathered you like a mother hen gathers her chicks, but you would have none of me. He stands in the temple and preaches to the Pharisees and the Sadducees, woe to you if you could just but follow the living God. So in this account, you almost can feel the ministry of Christ. Christ has come. Christ has been preached to the nations. The truth of Christ has been offered so that the knowledge of the true God is available. If you were to simply fear the Lord, you could have him. But it says here, but the fool, the fool will ignore it until it is too late. They will ignore it until the consequences arise. And when the consequences come, that is not the time to become wise. That is the time that you become a lesson learned. This is when you know as a parent. When I see this, I grab the eyes and ears of my kids, and I pointed at it, whatever's happening and say, "You see that? Don't do that. Learn from it. That is what you call comeuppance. But fear the Lord." Christ has given us this life. He's given us himself. He's given us his word. He's given us his spirit. He's given us the church. All of those things have been intended so that you might know the knowledge of the true God and then there might bow and give him your fealty and fear him, not because he's cold, but because he's grand and awesome and has done so much for you. And if you would do that, you would be on the path to wisdom. You would begin to know how the universe really, really works. Let's pray. Lord, we ask to the degree that it's possible that in our own doing that we would Regain a sense of awe in you, Lord. All-filled respect. So that we could have your mind. And if we could have your mind, then we could see the world the way you see it. If we could see the world the way you saw it, then we would see it perfectly and accurately with grand clarity. And then we would know what to do. So we ask the forgiveness, Lord, when we are so due-oriented, when we rush to results uh, without your mind about things. We thank you, Lord, for the gift of Christ, for his coming and revealing yourself to us, Lord. The way he is the image of the invisible God, that we we can begin to get our minds around. And I pray that, Lord, for all here. That we might have the mind of Christ. We ask this, Lord, in the name of Jesus. Amen.